See, what the church and what the world needs today is not to have felt needs addressed. What the church, what the world needs today is to get a glimpse of the holy, the majestic, the all-powerful, the sovereign God who alone is perfect, just, loving, and glorious. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Genesis 17, look with me, starting in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And I will, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the living God. The date was March 30th, 2019, just a few years ago. And the headline read like this. Grand Canyon tourist falls 1,000 feet to his death while taking photos. I've shared this news headline before, but what's sad about this particular news report was that three people had fallen off of the edge of the Grand Canyon in the span of that same month in that same area, but this particular death and the details of this particular death make it actually much more troubling. You see, the deceased was not an American citizen. He was a tourist from Hong Kong, and he fell to his death, not just because he was taking a photo, as the headline suggests, but to be more accurate, this man tragically fell 1,000 feet to his death because he was taking a selfie. He was standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and got a little too close taking a selfie. It may sound crazy, but over 250 people and counting have died taking selfies across the globe 
just in the last four or five years. It's actually a hashtag on social media, hashtag death by selfie. That's actually a thing. Now, I've shared that before, and, and I've shared this as an illustration, because I think we laugh at the sheer folly of that and think, who in their right mind would ever get on the edge of some cliff and take a selfie? But in the same way, consider with me just for a moment the idiocy of the modern church that has before her the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of Almighty God. And rather than bask in that glory, sing of that glory, study of that glory, we've turned the camera back upon ourselves. You see, there's a temptation in pastoral ministry to focus the attention of the text, if the text is even taught, on my responsibility, on who I am in the text, on what I need to do. It's all law and no gospel. And we do need to teach law so that we can adorn the gospel. We often, as we study, there's this pastoral temptation to put ourselves as the perceived hero within the narrative. And then what happens is as we open up the Bible throughout the week, if we do as Christians, and I hope we do, our devotional time becomes the Bible is about me. The Bible is for me, of course, but then the Bible becomes about me. And it doesn't just stop with the sermon. We've turned the camera back on ourselves even in our time of singing. Even the most popular modern worship songs have taken the robust gospel-centric lyrics of the ancient hymns and they've now changed the lyrics to fixate on these anthems that sing about me, about myself, repeating the same line about 800 times for good measure. And it's fine and good to sing songs about our salvation and how God is at work in our lives, but if you pay attention to the lyrics, you'll notice something subtle. A hundred years ago, the lyrics were we, but now the lyrics have changed to I. And so rather than come together and declare what God in Christ has done for us, it's no, what he's doing for me. It's very subtle, but it's a change. And see, what our generation and what every generation needs is not a neutered sermon or a sterilized song about how great and important I am, but we need a reminder and a renewal of the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of how great God is. The I am. In fact, one sermon series captures this point better than I can even make it. There was a sermon series recently called I am. And it was not about the I am statements, the eight I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life, etc. No, it was I am. It was who am I as a person? I am awesome. I am loved. And so when we come together every week to merely sing and talk about ourselves, why do we wonder that our communities are disaffected by the power of the gospel? You see, what the church and what the world needs today is not to have felt needs addressed. What the church, what the world needs today is to get a glimpse of the holy, the majestic, the all-powerful, the sovereign God who alone is perfect, just, loving, and glorious. The Cambridge Declaration uh, in the last generation said this. They said, wherever in the church biblical authority has been lost, Christ has been displaced, the gospel has been distorted, or faith has been perverted, it has always been for one reason. Here's the reason. 
Our interests have displaced God's, and we are doing the work in our way. The loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. And this declaration goes on to say, it is this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment, preaching into marketing, believing into technique, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. God is sovereign in worship, we are not. Our concern must be for God's kingdom, not our own empire's popularity or success. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for his glory alone. I'm setting this up because the church has a glory problem. We are not living our lives for the glory of God alone, but for our our own glory. And today, as we consider how God intervened in the life of this elderly man, Abraham, and his barren wife, Sarai, we see today in our second half of the study of Genesis 17 that God alone gets the glory, that God doesn't need our help, but he does require our obedience. And what we're going to see is his promise flies in the face of what is conceivable or what is even possible. And so what is on center stage today should not nor ever be the greatness of Abraham or the worth of Sarah, but it should be, the attention should be on the God who opens barren wombs, and in our case, the God who raises the dead to spiritual life. Last week, in the first half of chapter 17, we saw, as Pastor Micah taught, we saw El Shaddai, the Almighty God, and he was calling Abram to walk before him blamelessly. We saw how he again confirms his covenant, changing Abram's name to Abraham. We saw that the exalted father is now the father of a multitude, but he still only has one son. And we saw that this son is not the son of the promise. This week in these remaining verses in the chapter, we're going to see God changing not just Abram's name, but Sarai's name to Sarah. We saw last week how God instituted the sign of circumcision, and this was to be performed by Abram on himself as well as every male in his household. And we saw last week and learned, it was a great deep dive into circumcision. Is that corresponding to baptism? And we would answer as Christians, no, uh, as those who were taught well last week. Uh, This is not necessarily, baptism is not the Christian form of circumcision. Uh, But something far different is happening with the church. We're not a remnant within a greater community of unbelievers. No, the true church of Jesus Christ consists of all believers. All believers are born again. All believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who has sealed us until the day of redemption. There are no second-class Christians. We're all Christians. So thus circumcision is not the mark of the believer. Faith is. And Romans points that out in Romans chapter 4. So we'll see again today that even though Ishmael has been born uh, years prior, he is not the son of the promise. And today we'll finally be introduced to who the son of the promise is, well in advance of his birth or even his conception. And yet, we have to understand this today, even the son of Abraham, Isaac, he's not the one in whom the Gentiles will ultimately place their hope. We'll see there's a true and better Isaac who would one day come and bless 
all peoples through his life, his death, and his resurrection because he is himself the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So today in our text, we're going to see three main ideas. Again, the title is a God of the Impossible. Number one, we're going to see today that God reminds us to believe what is seemingly unbelievable. And we'll understand why this is unbelievable and why he laughs. Number two, we're going to see how God receives all the glory, not man. And that's a good thing. And thirdly, we're going to see how God recognizes active, allegiant obedience and how Abram uh, responds obediently. And it's my hope as we study this text that, again, we center our attention not on Abraham and Sarah, not on what we need to do, not on ourselves, but fix our gaze upon our gracious and almighty God who's awesome in glory. Amen? So let's begin with the first idea. God reminds us to believe what is seemingly unbelievable. Look at verse 15. God said to Abraham... As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, the name change for Abraham was a little more straightforward. We saw that it was an abbreviated name that meant something different. It was elongated to Abraham, and the name meaning changed. Whereas the change in name from Sarai to Sarah is subtle and a little more nuanced. Pastor Micah reminded us last week, there are several times in Scripture when God changes someone's name. So Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. As we'll see later in our Genesis study, Jacob becomes Israel. We know in the New Testament, Simon is also now known as Peter. Sometimes Paul the Apostle is said to have been Saul before he was saved and then became Paul after he was saved. I've even taught that, but Acts 13.9 says that he went by either name. Saul was his Jewish name and Paul his Latin name. But in each case in Scripture, when God changes someone's name from one name to another, it's ultimately because of a new vision for their life. So Jacob may have been known as the deceiver, the supplanting heel catcher, but his identity would now be linked as the one who wrestled with God, who is now governed by God, Israel. Sarai is likely the possessive form of Sarah. And so the name Sarai means, it could mean my Sarah or my princess. Remember, it means princess. So Sarai would be the form of Sarah, just the possessive form, my princess. And so Sarai confines her just to one family. But now, as God speaks his blessing on her, her new name signifies her influence does not just belong exclusively to her husband or to her her immediate family. It's now without restriction. She is now the princess, not just my princess. She's the princess of a multitude. And notice what God goes on to say, verse 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. Again, he reiterates that same phrase. And she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. So now, if you've been keeping count, the promise now comes to Sarah. Not that it hadn't previously, but God is leaving nothing to suspicion or conjecture. The barren woman is now blessed. From her own body would come nations of people and kings and citizens. God says, I will give you a son by her. No more surrogate mothers needed. No need to call Egypt for any more. This is the plan, Abram. 
No more culturally acceptable sinful polygamy to fall back on. No, Abraham and Sarah together will have a son. Now notice how Abraham responds in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So if you want to just for a moment circle that, that he fell on his face and he laughed. Now, there is no divine disapproval or rebuke for this laugh. But as we'll see in our study next week in chapter 18, Sarah will also laugh, but in Sarah's laugh, God's going to question why she's laughing. And so it seems that Abraham's laugh, unlike Sarah's, is not a laugh of skepticism, but of surprise. It's not a laugh of unbelief, but of amazement. Abraham is not asking himself these questions because he doesn't believe, but because this is so unbelievable that he's shocked. He, he's on his face as a sign of reverential awe, and, and the laughter and the self-talk, doesn't it? It often accompanies us when we hear fantastical news. You, you hear that someone like the Tobins are going to have twins, and you just, you just sort of go, that is awesome, man. You hear someone like the Kaisers, they had a child, and then they're having, they're having two twin boys. Like, you just, you hear that, and, and it's, a, it's a chuckle of, wow, that's incredible. But, but it's far deeper here with Abraham, far deeper. Uh, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, we, we just continue to be blessed with children. God is so gracious to us as a fellowship that now we're having twins uh, as a congregation. So God is so faithful. He grows his church his way. Notice what John Calvin said. This is deeper than just, ah, oh, that's, that's cool. Calvin says, not that he either ridiculed the promise of God or treated it as a fable or rejected it altogether. But as often happens when things occur which are least expected, partly lifted up with joy, partly carried out of himself with wonder, he burst out into laughter. See, it's deeper than just, oh, that's, that's good news. It's, that's impossible. How can this happen? But this is not a question or a laughter of unbelief. Romans 4 makes this clear, which is why it's so important we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Romans 4.19 says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Thanks for that, Paul. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He did not weaken in faith. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham could have easily disbelieved God's original promise and scoffed at it each and every time God reiterated it. But every time God reaffirmed this promise, God was reminding Abraham to believe what is seemingly unbelievable. Would you just for a minute put yourself in Abraham's sandals? Just think about this for a moment. How would you respond? You're almost 100 years old. Your wife medically is unable to conceive. And yet God promises the two of you will bear a son. 
Just think, this is absolutely, logically, and biologically, scientifically, physiologically, embryologically, biomechanically impossible. But this is not an isolated incident in the scriptures. Over and over throughout the word of God, we see God can certainly do what we as mankind consider impossible. You remember when Jesus was conversing with the rich young ruler who has the three things everyone in the world seems to want. He was young, he had power, and he was wealthy. And our Lord commanded him as he began to interact with the law, oh, I've kept all these since I was a youth. And Jesus said, perfect, go and sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor. He's touching on that one idol that this young man couldn't give up. And it says that when he heard these things, he became very sad because he had great wealth. Well, verse 24 of Luke 18, it says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying it's very difficult for someone who's wealthy to enter into the kingdom because they don't see their need. They feel like they have it all together. And then those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I think it's fascinating that all three of the synoptic gospels capture this statement from Jesus. He's not just speaking about rich people getting saved. He's speaking about salvation itself. And he's revealing to us that salvation itself is not possible from man's perspective. God is the initiator in our salvation because what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can make dead men alive. He can take spiritually blind men and open their eyes. What is impossible with us is possible with God. Now, earlier in Luke, these same words, very similar, were spoken to Mary about her cousin Elizabeth. It says in Luke 1, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary, what you may judge with your eyes and perceive as not possible, your relative being pregnant, that's nothing to God. God will do it. He can do it. He will do it. In Jeremiah 32, 27, God asked Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? There's an implied expected answer. What's the answer? Is anything too hard for the Lord, church? The answer is no. Next week when we come to chapter 18, God will say this to Abraham after Sarah laughs, this time out of unbelief, Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. You see, there's nothing impossible with God. And yet in the midst of this, God is challenging Abraham. So that brings us to our second point, that God receives all the glory, not man. Notice verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, Abraham has previously listened to, if you have read the Pilgrim's Progress, he's listened to Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who, who adopts the worldly doctrines. Why? Because they help you avoid the cross. 
If you take these doctrines, they'll help you avoid the cross. So listen to the world wisdom. He had done that, and Hagar was brought into the marriage bed, and she had conceived. And so now her son Ishmael, whom Abraham no doubt loved, he loved Ishmael, he was the son of the slave woman. Now, Galatians chapter 4 illustrates how this is a picture of the old covenant and the new covenant. And we're going to get to that. We're going to study that more in depth when we get to Genesis 21 because there's a lot to unpack about Hagar, the son of the slave woman, and Sarah, the son of the free woman. But here, Abraham is pushing his son Ishmael forward. He, as he often does throughout Genesis, he's interceding for him. And he's interceding for him to be the heir. Oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you, that he might be the promised son. He's the firstborn after all. And surely, even though he was wrought in the flesh, couldn't he still be God's choice? But look at verse 19. God said, no. (laughs) It's as simple as that, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Abraham's request for Ishmael to be the son of promise is denied. I mean, this is about as crystal clear as God can be. Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. His name will be Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him and his offspring after him. Now, if you're taking note, Isaac's name means one who laughs. And we'll see the significance of that next week. Both of his parents laugh, one out of shock, the other out of unbelief. And I just think it's fascinating that every time Abraham and Sarah called out his name, Isaac, come here, Isaac, get out of the pig pen. Every time they called his name, they were reminded at the sheer impossibility of his existence. They could now laugh with one another at how amazing God was bringing this son forth against all odds. But notice this is an everlasting covenant, not only with Abraham, but now it's going to be established with Isaac. But what about Ishmael? What about Ishmael? Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. God says, I hear you, Abraham, but I have another plan. Now, as I read this verse, I see the mercies of God here, that even in Abraham's folly, God is still going to bless Ishmael and multiply him greatly. I've said this when we studied this back in chapter 16, God could have just struck Hagar and Ishmael and the child could have died. But here, God promises to bless him. And notice we have the language of the uh, original dominion mandate in Genesis that we are to be fruitful and multiply. We see that again in verse 20. Behold, I'll bless him, I'll make him fruitful and multiply him. I will do for Ishmael what I called Adam and Eve to originally do, what I called Noah to do. I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him. And then notice, he shall father 12 princes. Now, if you want to go back and read those, I'm not going to read through them today. You can read those in Genesis 25, verses 13 through 16. And go home, this will be a fun exercise. Pronounce those names at the dinner table with your kids. Those are the 12 princes of Ishmael. Now, I think it's awesome that Isaac mirroring Ishmael would also be the father of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. However, though God would bless him, establish him, raise up 
12 princes under him, his covenant would not extend to Ishmael. Notice verse 21. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. We'll see it again in chapter 18. But here God is calling the end from the beginning. This time next year, Sarah shall bear Isaac. Now just think about this. Abraham cannot receive the glory for Isaac, but he could have with Ishmael. I, I sat with my wife and we drew up this idea, this great plan. It's, it's culturally acceptable. And this was the son of the promise, Ishmael. Then he would have received the glory for that. But see, with Isaac... All he can say is, my body's as good as dead. At least Paul thinks so. And my wife is unable to conceive. And God told us even before we got pregnant that we would have a son and that this time next year she would be conceiving. She would be burying the son. She'd be giving birth to him. And so Abraham can't receive the glory for Isaac. You see, he had tried to help the Lord fulfill his own promise, but God didn't need his assistance. And this reveals to us that God alone reveals or receives the glory. God alone receives the glory, not man. God was emptying Abraham and Sarah of every instrument that could potentially rob him of the glory he alone deserved. He was pushing them further and further into what is impossible with man so that man would not steal the glory which has and will always be our default and fallen state. We will always seek to steal the glory. This is what happened in Herod's life. In Acts chapter 12, you remember he's given a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon as this peace treaty was signed. And after the speech, they shouted, the voice of a God and not of a man. And you remember what happened right there. Herod should have said, no, time out, hard stop false teaching alarm. He should have said, stop, stop, stop. Give the glory to God. But instead, he didn't correct them. He probably was like, yeah, I think you're right. I have quite a wonderful name. And what happens is he was struck dead. And so in our sinfulness, we will often, we will always seek to rob God of the glory that is due his name alone. And God is, is taking away every single instrument that would lead to his glory being robbed. And so in our own lives, we must give God all the glory. I listen to <clears throat> uh, various forms of instrumental music every week when I study. And it's not just 80s synthwave. That's my favorite music to listen to. Um, but I often will listen to classical music. Don't at me. I, I do like classical music. And uh, other than Mozart, who's my favorite, my second favorite composer is Bach. And it's said that Bach composed over 1,100 works that he played the organ, the harpsichord, the violin, and the viola, not at the same time. But he, he played all these instruments, and not only that, he had 20 children. And so uh, history speaks of him writing music for the church and for the world, but for Bach, all of his music was for God's glory. In fact, on almost every one of his compositions, uh, remember there's 1,100, there was this small signature, but you see that none of those letters are J.S. Bach, J.S.B. So what is S.D.G.? What does that stand for? And on closer review, people realize this wasn't a signature. This was an abbreviation for Sole Dea Gloria. 
Uh, this means to the glory of God alone. This is one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And it was the motivation that drove the reformers to keep on reforming. That God alone in our salvation, that God alone in the church, that God alone in the scriptures, because the scriptures are the revelation of God, God alone deserves and receives the glory. That means in my life and in Christ's church, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So I don't exist for my glory. Isaac existed for the glory of God so that people could look at him and say, what's your name again? The one who laughs. Oh, both of your parents laughed at the sheer impossibility of your birth. God is the one who, who wrought Isaac. You see, God receives the glory. I like what John Piper said. He said, this is the faith that we are called to have, that God will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God receives the glory for my salvation, not my wonderful faith that God looked through time and said, that one will receive me. He'll choose me, so therefore I choose him. No, that means I'm the one who gets the glory. God receives the glory for the breath in my lungs. Let's not take those for granted. It's not me. I'm keeping myself alive. Really? How are you doing with your heartbeat? Oh, I'm just, I keep my heart rate going. No, God is the one who receives the glory. And God receives the glory for Isaac. It wasn't because of Abraham or Sarah. Now, let's look at this third section, and we'll just review these verses briefly. Verse 22, we'll get to our third point. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Would you write down number three, that God recognizes active, allegiant obedience. <clears throat> we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 17 that God had commanded Abraham to circumcise every male in his household. And the language, particularly in verse 23, but also in verse 26, uh, have a description of obedience for us. Observe with me in verse 23 the word then. Then what? Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and he circumcised him. It says that very day. But what happened before the then? Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So the then is immediate. As soon as God finishes talking with Abraham, right then, Abraham obeyed. In fact, verse 26 says that very day. He doesn't even waste a day. He's got to sit these men down and explain to him, okay, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. This is coming. Um, we're going to do this today. There's no, we're not going to deliberate. We're not going to take a day or two. We're not going to take a week. This is happening now. And so I find it fascinating that verse 27 says, all the men of his house, not just Ishmael, not just Abraham, not just those who were born, those who were bought with money from a foreigner. Now, remember, God had called Abraham back in chapter 17, verse 1. He had called him to walk before me and be blameless. And that's what we learned about Noah back in Genesis 6. Look at the screen with me. Genesis 6 said, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. 
So Moses, the writer of Genesis, is establishing for us the pattern of God's covenant and favor, his blessing upon those who are blameless and who walk with God. What do we see Noah doing? We see him obeying an external, obscure command of God to the very letter. We see the ark of God uh, built, and we see him doing this immediately and without complaint. Here, we likewise observe Abraham obeying another external, obscure command of God, but he does it completely. You see, these are the marks of blameless men who walk with God. Their faith is proven by active, obedient allegiance to Yahweh. Think with me for a moment about these marks of obedience, and I just want to give them to you in three uh, phrases. As parents, Jen and I always taught our children that we are to obey, that obedience embodied three things. As children, we are to obey right away, all the way, with a joyful heart. These are very invaluable as parents. If you're raising your children who are younger, you can invite your kids to recite these, to remember these. How am I supposed to obey? I I obey mom right away, all the way, with a joyful heart. And we used to have our kids say them over and over and over as they could barely fumble through their words. I obey wide away, all the way. You know, we would do that with them. But... These three marks don't stop with children. These are incidentally the marks of obedience, active obedience of our Lord, who always lived to please the Father. Think about Jesus' obedience. It was immediate, it was complete, it was without complaint. Obedience is immediate, it's without hesitation. Abraham does this as soon as God leaves him. Think of those examples in Scripture when someone doesn't obey right away. Obedience is complete. It's without compromise. Notice verse 23. He does exactly what God commands him to do. We know this is where King Saul failed and lost his kingdom. He didn't fully obey the Lord in utterly destroying the Amalekites. Obedience is joyful. It's without complaint. Now, that one's a little more difficult in context with circumcision. You want me to do what, Lord? Okay, I'll do that. But we don't read anywhere here with Abraham or with Noah that there was arguing or reluctance or complaining. You see, there's a strange false teaching somewhere that crept into the church that implies that any obedience is law and we're not under law, we're under grace. So we no longer have to obey. We no longer have to follow the commands of the New Testament. We can just sin away, no consequences, no problem. Grace has got you. But this is an antinomian, licentious teaching that's not found in the New Testament. You see, in our study of 1 John on Wednesday night, we've been learning the difference between professors of the gospel and possessors, those who say they're Christian and those who truly are. Listen to these words from 1 John 5, which we just studied this past Wednesday. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You say, I love the Lord, but I don't obey the Bible. Then you don't love the Lord. Being obedient to God does not make you a legalist. It makes you a Christian. You see, Abraham is actively allegiant in his obedience to Yahweh. And in so doing, he proves his faith was genuine. When we obey the Lord, we're showing with our actions that what we profess with our mouths is real and good and true. 
And so there's a great example for us to learn and to consider. Is my own obedience to the Lord, is it immediate or do I hesitate? Is it, is it without complaint or am I, am I arguing with him? Is it full and complete or half-hearted? Now, I want to take a moment and give us two take-home points from this text to help bring all of this home. And we've already focused our point on this, but I, I do want to just drive this home as we uh, almost wrap this up. But first of all, nothing is impossible for our sovereign God. Amen? Amen? Church, we need to get this into our concrete craniums. There is nothing which is too hard. Nothing we can conjure up in our finite minds which is impossible for God to accomplish. Scripture bleeds this truth from cover to cover. Just consider for a moment the works of God that are supernatural and impossible. We would say, with man, this is impossible. Just think about these for a minute. First, creating ex nihilo. That means creating something from nothing. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Man, I wish that I had ex nihilo power, don't you? Just say Chipotle bowl, and it just appears. That would be a glorious day. You don't have that power. We cannot create ex nihilo. What about sending a global flood of judgment? In Genesis chapter 6, God judges the world justly and sends that we can't even hold back tropical storm winds from knocking our power out. Try a global storm surge. See, God does this. With man, this is impossible. Scattering the nations in one act. God thwarts the plans of Nimrod's empire and Babylon fell. We know this will happen again at the end of the age in the span of about a half an hour. God can do that in one action, just scatter all the nations. Knowing the end from the beginning. God can call the end from the beginning. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, let alone next year, and yet God holds eternity in his hand. What about dividing the Red Sea and all 10 of those miracles in Egypt that were done to shatter the idols of the Egyptians? This was to show that, that uh, the Pharaoh who Yahweh was. And remember, the magicians could replicate some of the miracles. They could create more bloody water, but they couldn't remove the blood. And so they uh, were shown only God can do this. Or causing the sun to stand still. Some of you parents can't make your kids stand still. But God can make the heavenly body stand still. But greatest of all, God sent his incarnate son to be born of a virgin. You see, the glorious truth of the gospel reveals the impossible work of God alone. What could be more impossible than opening spiritually blind eyes, regenerating spiritually dead men? No amount of apologetics or being a good neighbor is going to bring someone from death to life. This is only and always the work of a sovereign God. And so whenever man says, there's no way, I love when our God makes a way. Nothing's impossible for him. Finally, second point, our utmost hope is not in Isaac. It's not, but it's in the true and greater son of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah put their faith in God, and they hoped against hope that God would bless the nations through their son Isaac. But we know as the scripture goes on, it'll say Isaac died, and he'll pass on this covenant to Jacob, and Jacob will die. And he'll pass this covenant on. 
And as God's people, we know there's a true and better Isaac. He wasn't just offered up on Mount Moriah, but he died in our place as the all-sufficient sacrifice. And in the hymn, Christ the True and Better, Matt Boswell wrote these lyrics. Christ the true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life. Laid with faith upon the altar, Father's joy and only Son, their salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. You see, the beloved Son was given for you and for me. He, the true and better Isaac, was fully obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and he gave up his life for his friends and even died to reconcile his enemies. And this morning, he invites you to come, not for a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. That our hearts would be set apart from this world and dedicated to Yahweh. That we would come to the cross, that we would die, that we would rise again, be forgiven, and truly live. And so as we close this morning, may we be reminded again of the greatness of God of the glory of God that will never be shared with us. We're going to sing those familiar and comforting words, how great thou art. And may we sing with a deeper understanding and attention on his greatness today as we lift our voices together in song. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. And we thank you, Lord, as we look at the sheer impossibility of a son being born to Abraham and Sarah, we also see the sheer impossibility of a child born to a virgin, of God incarnate, truly God and truly man, of a God who would love us while we were yet sinners and send his own beloved son to die in our place. We see the sheer impossibility of him fulfilling the law to the letter and taking the place of punishment we deserve and rising again triumphantly. What is impossible with man and science is surely not hard for the Lord. And so this morning, we glory in your greatness. You are far above all of creation. We join with the angels to declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with your glory. We dare not touch it, but we lift our hearts and our hands and our attention on you this morning, and we declare how great thou art. Thank you for your work of salvation, sanctification, one day glorification. The same God who has the power to save us, to sanctify us, will also raise us up with Christ and bring us to glory. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God. We worship you today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.